Hello everyone, it's uh, Stavros Yanuka here with another episode of Wise Words. Uh, my guest on this episode is Andreas Schleicher. Uh, he's the Director of Education and Skills and the Special Advisor on Education Policy to the Secretary General of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the Rich World's Economic Think Tank and is headquartered in Paris, uh, France. Andreas is a statistician and researcher, and he's the man behind the Program for International Schools Assessment, uh, which is better known by its acronym PISA. Uh, it's a set of standardized tests used to compare learning outcomes in maths, science, and native language amongst 15-year-olds from participating countries. Now, since its launch in 2000, the PISA report, which is published every three years, has garnered considerable media attention, uh, primarily because of its ranking of countries based on the test results. Who doesn't love a league table? It has also, though, become quite influential amongst policymakers who are keen to explore and understand the consistent success of education systems as diverse as those of Finland, uh, Singapore, and South Korea. Not surprisingly, PISA has also attracted a fair amount of criticism by those who view it as yet another case of the tail that is standardized testing wagging the dog that is the education system. In this podcast, Andreas and I discuss, amongst other things, the intent behind PISA, what it does and doesn't measure, how it has evolved over time, and what are some of the key insights that emerge from this body of work. I mean, along the way, Andres also has the opportunity to address some of the criticisms. Enjoy the podcast. I'm here with Andreas uh, Schleicher. Andreas, welcome to Wise Words. Thanks very much. Andres, uh, you are best known as the architect of PISA, the program for international student assessment that uh, you run out of the OECD, uh, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, uh, which is uh, often referred to as the developed world's think tank. Um, can you share with us uh, a little bit about what is PISA? Because I think a lot of people think they know what it is, but they're not they're not quite uh, quite sure. Yeah, PISA is an assessment of student knowledge and skills, to some extent also attitudes and views. Um, but it's different from many tests in, that, in the sense that we're not primarily interested in seeing whether students can reproduce what they've learned. We're more interested in whether, than cr whether they can creatively use and apply their knowledge. Yep. And that's very much at the center, sort of problem-solving skills. Our latest assessment also included social skills. So this is the idea. And we do that in an international sphere because we wanted to create a mirror in which countries can see themselves. Education is still a very domestic field of policy mm -hmm. and very inward-looking often. Yeah. And uh, we wanted to give countries a tool to see, you know, what's happened elsewhere in the world, you know, which countries are progressing at the most rapid speed and what they can learn from those experiences. That's also why PISA doesn't only assess learning outcomes, but it also collects a lot of contextual data from students, from parents, from teachers, from schools, so that we can actually understand the results and contextualize them. Yeah. Can, can you say a little bit more about the, the contextual data that you um, give maybe some examples of the kinds of things that you gather? 
Yeah, for example, it's very important to look at the social and economic context in which students grow up, in which schools operate. You know. yep. If you want to compare the results from schools or countries for that matter, you know, if you ignore that, you compare apples with oranges. Yep. And yep. so we want to actually make sure that we can compare like with like students, like with like schools. We call them statistical neighbors. Mm -hmm. This one dimension, but also, you know, when you look at differences in learning outcomes, we want to understand uh, about the learning strategies that students yeah. use, about their attitudes towards learning, their attitudes towards the careers. You know, maybe schools do a great job in educating students in science, but they don't give them that kind of aspiration that science can open life opportunities. Mm -hmm. So yeah. all of that is important. From teachers, we are very interested in learning about, you know, their own attitudes towards teaching, their pedagogical approaches, their yeah. pedagogical beliefs, uh, their practices. And we put all of that data together. And actually, what's, when we started with this, we could statistically explain about 35% of the performance variation mm -hmm. among schools. We thought it was a lot. Yeah. Today, we can account for 85% of wow. the performance variation. Yeah. So actually, the power of those kinds of systems has become really strong. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, I came across PISA, you know, probably five and a half years ago when I took on the my, my current role mm -hmm. at Wise, and the overwhelming um, reaction that I was getting from from uh, the community was was largely negative. And I would say it wasn't until you and I began sort of interacting that I that I, you know, understood um, a little bit better what you know what you were trying to do. Speak a little bit to, you know, uh, address, if you will, your, your detractors. I mean, some of the, the detractors will say, well, you know, uh, the PISA test is uh, just a measure of what students can recall. Yeah, actually, first of all, I think uh, almost anybody has a natural, you know, reaction when it comes to assessment. Nobody yeah. likes to be tested, assessed. Yeah. So I can understand this to some extent. At the same time, I believe it's important that we ask ourselves, you know, to what extent do we actually achieve what we say we are aiming yeah. for in education? And that's really what PISA is about. Uh, but the point that, that PISA is uh, uh, an assessment of recall is easy to refute. In fact, yeah. you know, you, you, you don't find many questions in PISA where you have to remember everything, yeah. anything. You know, we almost always give students the factual knowledge which they need to solve a problem. Yeah. You know, maybe in the future we'll allow them to access the internet because basically we're not interested in assessing, you know, simply things you can find somewhere. Yeah. What we are assessing, for example, take science. We're yeah. less interested in, you know, knowledge in physics, biology, chemistry. We're really interested in whether students can think like a scientist. Yeah. Can they design an experiment? Can they evaluate scientific claims? Can they distinguish a question that is scientifically investigable yeah. from one that is, you know, just popular beliefs? Yeah. So actually, the, the questions are all designed around this. And it's actually very interesting when you compare the results from PISA. Uh, you can see that some countries that do really well on, you know, classical tests of content yeah. knowledge don't do so well on PISA. Yeah. You can look at the Czech Republic in Europe or you can look at the Russian Federation. Yeah. Uh, those countries do much better on traditional content-based tests than they do yeah. on PISA. But you also see the reverse. You know, see a country like Finland mm -hmm. that actually does particularly well on this kind of assessment where we assess students' thinking skills. So yeah. And the, another another um, critique, which 
in my view, may have some more uh, legitimacy is is around how the tests are being used by policymakers and 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 the media. It, you know, when when you look at reporting on PISA, it's largely as if they're reporting the latest league table, you know, uh, football league table, mm. right? You know, who's first, who's second, who moved up, who moved down. There's very little nuance um, around the, some of the details that you've, you know, you've talked about. Yeah, you know, that's true, uh, but less and less so. Actually, I must, I'm very encouraged how nuanced the media reporting now has okay. become. For example, when you look at when the PISA results are launched, first of all, you look at our own books, you know, the publication of PISA, you'll find about 10 pages about the leak tables and about 990 pages yeah. with deep analysis. And I must actually say, increasingly, the media capture that. Is looking at the ana you, reading the analysis. For example, when the PISA results come out, you find detailed reports, you know, how's education in Shanghai or Finland or Alberta or, you know, Ontario uh, coming out. They actually, this good effort done by the media now to really get behind the leak tables. Yeah. That being said, you know, I, I think uh, league tables are often an interesting starting point. You yeah. know, uh, if you don't know where the education leaders are, you're unlikely to learn from them. F for example, who looked at Finland before PISA? You know, it was yeah. a small country somewhere in the north of Europe. Nobody knew about its education system. And without the league table, probably that wouldn't have changed. Or yeah. today, you know, we have often thought, so, so, you know, oh, China is about rote learning, very traditional education. Nobody would have imagined that they are running some of the most innovative pedagogies, yeah. you know, and um, that's what those kind of league tables expose. They they sh they are often a useful starting point. They should never be the end of the story. Yeah. They should encourage us to look deeper, and uh, we're trying to do that at the OECD. And I must say, you know, find you know the Economist, the New York Times, they are actually really good in uncovering yeah. what lies behind those results. Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I'm less worried about. You know about media like the New York Times mm. and, and the Economist, and you're right. You know, the Economist in particular, I've noticed over the last, I would say, three to four years, has really devoted significant resources yeah. to um, exploring mm. uh, education issues. Mm. Um, I'm more concerned about the typical headlines that you know that that we see in in shall we say um, uh, less high quality mm. media where. Really, the focus is very much on, you know, on uh, on the more sensational yeah. um, results, which is, you know, you know, we've dropped this many positions, our country, or yeah. you know, and yeah. so on. But I guess that's that's yeah. true of, of most domains now. I, I was just going to say that, you know, yeah. wouldn't that be true for almost any issue uh, in mm. education, in particular? You know, when there is some. You know, we rarely talk about the great work of teachers that is done every day. We talk about one problem in a school. Yeah. You know, when there is an issue, something wrong, that's where all the attention goes. And which is a pity, you know, there's every day so much amazing work being done yeah. in the most difficult circumstances that... Um, yeah. do, do you, how, do you, how do you find the reception from, from the education community? Because you, you're, a, you're a statistician, you're not a... Mm -hmm. Uh, an, an educator, but and and yet here you are in some ways uh, behind what is arguably one of the most authoritative um, reports, global reports on education. How how has have your interactions with the education community uh, developed over time? 
Yeah, you know, I think it's been an interesting sort of development. At the beginning, uh, there was a huge gap. You had this data, and we ourselves couldn't very well explain those yeah. results because we simply had observed, you know, the findings. And we had educators, of which many of them were even skeptical that you could measure mm. the quality of education yeah. somewhere, so equity and opportunities or efficiency, things like we look at it, PISA. And, and that gap has uh, amazingly closed. I think PISA has become better in, you know, linking the results to what happens mm -hmm. in classrooms, you know, by introducing surveys like Talis, where we give teachers a voice by collecting contextual data. And the education community has become much more open mm -hmm. to actually an empirical perspective in education. Yeah. You know, that was highly contested when PISA came up first in 2000. Now we don't find it's still some people, some individuals, but generally I think the education community accepts that the empirical kind of way of looking at things provides one important perspective yeah. on outcomes. So I actually think this been come a, become a really fruitful dialogue. And I can give you sort of some examples. One, uh, one of the things that we now do every year is we bring the ministers and union leaders from countries together yeah. in the International Summit of the Teaching Profession. And uh, we are able to discuss topics that you know used to be mired in controversy. You know, how do we evaluate teachers? How do we actually you know develop meaningful yeah. careers for teachers? Things that are so contested, controversial within countries. Suddenly, based on evidence and data, we were able to discuss them in the rational way. Ministers were able and willing to sit next to their union leaders in those summits. It's just one example, which you know would probably be unthinkable before. Yeah. Research and policy has got much closer together. A lot of education research used to be quite remote from the real classrooms and real teaching world. Yeah. And again, I think um, there's a lot happened over the last decade. I, I must say for the positive. Yeah. And and do you feel, I mean, again, we've been calling, I think, um, certainly uh, WISE as a platform and, and others have been calling for more research into into education, more more science, if you will, going yeah. into um, into education to uh, to illuminate what, what works and what doesn't. And and in this regard, I think, you know, you um, you guys are actually making an, an important contribution I would argue however we need we need more yeah you know you're absolutely right and I think you advice uh, sort of have created a very very important space on that you know if you look at this from the outside we invest about 15 times as much in medical research yeah. than in education research yeah. despite the fact that education and and uh, sort of health have a similar position in public budgets yeah and that tells us a little bit about the attitude in education we have often we still think education is largely an art not a science yeah. not replicable not yeah. scalable in the way that other fields are and that's a pity mm -hmm. you know that actually is mirrored in what what you see you have fantastic schools almost anywhere in a, in any country but very few countries have made success systemic yeah. because they are not able to sort of build the kind of support structures around that and on good science also you know unfortunately you have many educators who do not believe that their practice can be transformed by science no? yeah which is very different you know in most other fields people would enter their profession in the belief that science is going to transform their way of thinking their way of working all of that 
in education, you know, we still have a very industrial work organization. Yeah. We believe, you know, someone in the ministry can decide what thousands of millions of students should be doing as opposed to enabling people at the front line to become researchers and yeah. scientists. And today you can only see this in countries, you know, like Finland and Europe is a good example, or, you know, Japan, China, where teachers are educated as researchers. Yeah. They spend a considerable part of the time outside the classroom working with other teachers, doing yeah. experiments, doing kind of classroom designs together. Teachers are designers, teachers are researchers, and I think that's the kind of attitude that we need to create, but we're very far from this. Yeah. And I think, you know, the space that you created at Weiss is often still quite disconnected mm -hmm. from the public policy sphere where educations yeah. are made, decisions are made based on administrative considerations. And we really run, you know, large factories. Yeah. We don't run kind of knowledge industries, which we yeah. should be. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, the education system is often described as a batch process, right? Yeah. You just, you know, you move yeah. kids in batches. Yeah year in year out yeah i mean you can you, yep. if, if you think about what neuroscience has discovered mm -hmm. over the last you know five six years very little of this has made its way into yeah. education practice and even less in education policy yeah. you know we know the only way you will not learn a foreign language is to have someone in secondary uh, school level teaching you one hour on Monday and one hour on Thursday. The brain just doesn't absorb languages no. in this way. Yeah. But we teach in those ways because it's the most convenient way of doing it in school. Yeah. What What are your thoughts about, cause one of the things that we're exploring um, increasingly at, at WISE is this idea of the, uh, the school as a laboratory. Um, do you have any, any thoughts around that? So the idea that that schools should incorporate some element of of research into their routine they should be trying um setting up to a certain extent maybe even control experiments mm. with the students to sort of figure out what methods work uh and and what uh, and what don't what what are you, what are your thoughts on on that yeah, you know, what What you sort of describe as something, a very courageous, innovative effort is actually the reality in many other fields of our life. Yeah. You know, education is a very kind of conserva conservative social field. You yeah. know, we all like innovation except for our own children. Yeah. So it's very <laughs> difficult to sort of yeah. uh, get people to support a more innovative approach. But I think where we can start is to create a more research-oriented mindset among teachers, you know, where you as a teacher are expected to contribute to your profession, not just to use yeah. professional practice, where you are connected with your other teachers, where we create more space, give teachers more time for other things in the classroom. And I must actually say it's very interesting if you compare, for example, China and the United States. Both have a similar student-staff ratio. Yeah. The amount of resources they put in the system is roughly similar. But in uh, China, they have very large classes. In the U U.S., they have very small classes. Now, on, on the surface, you might think, well, the U.S. is better. Smaller classes are nicer. But actually, what it means is that teachers in America have very little time for anything else than teaching. They spend one hour teaching after the other. Yeah. That's the kind of model mm -hmm. of working. You know, we told you what to teach. Now just do it. Yeah. In China, you spend, you know, every week at least one hour observing somebody else's classroom. You work with others to prepare your lessons, to you evaluate the lessons. You spend a lot of time with individual students, with mm -hmm. their parents. It's a very different way of working mm -hmm. where you are actually involved in research. For example, they have a digital platform in, in Shanghai where teachers can upload their lesson plans. Yeah. 
And so you can share your practice with other colleagues, but the trick is it's combined with the reputational metrics. So the more other teachers are going to download your lessons, improve your lesson, criticize your yeah. lessons, the more recognition mm -hmm. you have in the profession. And at the yeah. end of the school year, your principal will not only ask you, you know, how well did you teach your students in the class, but what contribution did you make to the profession? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of mindset, you know, I give yeah. to the profession. We need yeah. a credit, and every school should be, uh, in a way, a laboratory in the search for better education practice. Yeah, yeah. You know, in, a, in a way, in the medical field, you know, research is not done in universities, or at least not exclusively. It's done by doctors doing clinical trials. You know, yeah. and they do this in very kind of safe way for patients. So, in a way, we can create those kind of spaces where. This is not putting students at risk. In, in a way, I'm much more worried today where you know you have somebody making a big policy decision. It gets rolled out to millions of students yeah. without any kind of evaluation. And in fact, we are doing experiments with systems yeah. as opposed to you know doing them small scale with classrooms yeah. or yeah or with with yeah. one you know one discipline or one yeah. one particular domain but what is most important to me is really the mindset the, that we create this inquiry based ma mindset among students you know i don't think students will become lifelong learners if they do not see their teachers as lifelong learners yeah. as being inquiries and that's exactly you know what we're trying to support with pisa that's what pisa is about yeah. giving teachers in fact you know our latest effort is to create a pisa for schools yeah. where we give actually schools you know, very practical tools to learn more about the students, to learn yeah. more about, you know, other schools. And yeah, no, that's, that's really research. interesting. Let, let's get into a little bit of the substance of, of the uh, of, of the piece of findings. Uh -huh. What are what are some of the key things that you see coming up year after year? And I'm talking about the, the, the again, the more nuanced contextual type of, yeah. um, of, of, of evidence that you're you're bringing up. You know, I think the first thing that strikes us every time is that, you know, the amount of money countries spend on education is much less predictive of a success in education than the capacity of systems to attract the most talented teachers to the most challenging yeah. classrooms, sort of to align resources with needs. Yeah. Education systems that have become very, very good at that with, for example, formula-based approaches to funding where, you know, we devote more resources to students with greater needs in a kind of tailored way uh, those systems generally are not more equitable only, but mm -hmm. they're also more efficient, more mm -hmm. effective. You know? First thing, when it comes to resources, in the same way, you know, systems uh, that prioritize the quality of teachers over the size of yeah. classes with similar spending tend out to come out better. But we're also seeing very, very, very interesting patterns when you look more deeply into a classroom practice, for example, systems that, uh, you know, have a strong emphasis on memorization strategies and student learning. Yep. Students get the easy tasks right, but they struggle when it comes to more complex problem solving, which is yep. the dominant share of PISA tasks. This is where, you know, elaboration strategies, so learning strategies do yep. really matter, the approaches that uh, teachers ta uh, take to this. Um, I think there are sort of many teacher-related factors that are very, the collaborative culture. You know, yeah. we see, for example, that the more teachers observe each other's classes, engage in co collaborative professional development, the greater the levels of teacher self-efficacy, teachers, you know, trust in their being effective, teachers' job satisfaction yeah. depends more on, a, on professional autonomy in a collaborative culture than it yeah. depends on the size of classes and even teacher pay. So they're very kind of intriguing 
findings uh, coming out of this. But I think the, the most sort of important uh, dimension is, of course, the comparative dimension. You know, the fact that the 10% most disadvantaged kids in Shanghai outperform the 10% wealthiest American children now shows actually what's possible. Well, yeah, you, I, know, I, you can really see that uh, with the right choices, the right investment, every child can learn. Yeah. You know, that's what we say, but we can actually see it in some systems where actually the relationship between social background and learning outcomes has become so weak that every child succeeds and uh, yeah. every school succeeds. You know what, again, you go back to Finland. What makes that country so interesting in educational terms is not that it is a high average performer, but that only 5% of the performance variation lies between schools. Yeah. Every school succeeds. So yeah. this is actually where a system succeeds as yeah. a system. So I think that they're very powerful lessons. Yeah. That's, and a lot of what you've said really centers around around teachers and the teaching profession and, and how you you empower essentially people in the mm -hmm. field to, yeah. um, to, to offer the best of themselves. Um, now, you and I have been on, I think, a, a couple of panels together where the issue of technology yeah. keeps cropping up. What are, what are some of your views in terms of, of you know, you, you have obviously the, the, the sort of the, the tech evangelists who are out there saying, you know, well, you know, technology will eventually replace teachers. Then you have, you know, should we say the more more traditional um, advocates that say, well, you know, technology can never replace uh, the teacher. It can only ever be be a tool. Where where are you in this in this sort of uh, debate? You know, I, I do see the promise of technology. You know, why should students learn from a textbook that was printed two years ago, maybe designed 10 years ago, yeah. and they can have access to the world's most advanced knowledge. You know, we can use teach, uh, technology for much more engaging inquiry-based pedagogies. Yeah. You know, rather than having, you know, teacher-centered instruction, you can have students, you know, doing things that they yeah. couldn't do before. Virtual laboratories, you know, all of those things are possible. I think the potential of technology for having, you know, teacher collaboration, co-creation of yeah. educational resources. That's the promise. At the very same time, you know, if you look at the outcomes today, uh, often technology does more damage than good in classrooms. Now there's sort of a curve, mm -hmm. a little bit of technology set, seems to be conducive, yeah. and then you get very quickly beyond a point where actually, and it's also, you know, not so much of a surprise when you look into this. Often we have, you know, 21st century technology, we combine that with 20th century teaching and mm -hmm. a 19th century school system. S setting, and yeah. that sort of really almost you <laughs> yeah. know, becomes poisonous. If students sit in the classroom and copy and paste things from Google, of course you get worse results than from very traditional teaching. Yeah. So I think my, my take on this is really that I think we have to recognize that learning is a social experience. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and it will always be like that. And that means that you know, technology can amplify great teaching, yeah. but it's unlikely to replace poor teaching. Mm -hmm. You know, poor teaching with technology probably gets you less. And yeah. So I think uh, it's about, uh, you know, making more creative use out of technology. And it also means that, uh, you know, maybe if you look at some of the highest performing education systems, it's actually interesting. They start with technology, typically not in the classroom, but with teachers. Yeah, you know, just giving teachers better tools to mm -hmm. you know yeah. manage their work, connect with their colleagues, learn themselves, 
and then gradually expecting them to bring that into the classroom and also out, outside the classroom. Yeah. I think when you look at uh, some countries, the big promise of, of technology is that it can actually level the playing field, that it can give you know, students access to education resources well beyond school yeah. worlds. No. Yeah. So you're, I mean, if, if I had to synthesize, I mean, then you're, you're very much of the view that technology is, is, is a tool um, and it's really a question of how best to deploy it and make use of it. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. I, I also hope, you know, that technology will able, you know, I, I don't think technology is ever going to replace teachers, but it will, as in many other jobs, replace certain functions. Functions, And yeah. the kind of boring functions, the administrative yeah. functions, the kind of uh, transmission of knowledge. Teachers are more likely to become, you know, good coaches, good facilitators, yep. good, you know, evaluators, good designers. Mentors. Mentors. Mm -hmm. So I think it will change the role of teaching to actually elevate. I think it's actually a tool to elevate the status of the teaching profession and to yep. make the job a lot more intellectually interesting. You know, the big challenge we have for teaching today is not just that it's often financially not attractive, but it, that it's intellectually not sufficiently attractive mm -hmm. to attract the kind of people you want to become teachers. We have yeah. made this job sort of too uh, boring for many people and i think technology probably can help to change that yeah and and what um what's your view around artificial intelligence i mean then big data there's again a, a lot of talk about how you know this uh, this this revolution that is that is uh, uh, upon us is is going to fundamentally transform the workplace um, I can also see ways in which it may it may transform uh, education. What what are your thoughts around that? You know, I, in, in when you when you move outside of schools and universities, it does already transform education. I think it's good like this that yeah. you know, big data is opening up so many new opportunities for. I mean, today you know more about your Uber driver than about your teacher. Yeah. You know, that can't be sort of true in a, in a world in which we live. I yeah. think big data is going to enable us to know more about each other, to build also metrics of trust, which I mm -hmm. think is very important. Yeah. You know, uh, if, if people start to share educational resources and we can, you know, uh, build metrics of trust around, it's going to be much better than having, you know, only government accreditation for educational resources. So I see the potential as very significant for learners, you know. It will shift the focus from teaching to learning, yeah. and um, as we have seen in other fields. No. Andres, we're, we're we're sort of coming up to, uh, to to the end of our time, and I know you're um, you have another engagement uh, in a little while. So, I, I want to end with um, just with a couple of things. First, uh, to give you an opportunity to let our listeners know what is coming up um, in in your work. What should they be looking out for in the in the coming uh, coming months? Mm. Um, and then I'll I'll uh, close by asking you the, uh, the the question that we ask all listeners, uh, all um, uh, participants on on the podcast, mm. which is if there's one area of knowledge that you uh, or one skill that you would want every single person uh, to have, what would that be? Mm. Yeah, first of all, on the on the outlook, you know, we yeah. just came out with our first assessment of social skills. You know, yeah. when we started with PISA, anybody would have almost you know claimed we could never assess social skills of people. Well, at least one dimension, collaborative problem solving, came out, and we could see actually that not every individual 
problem solver is actually also a good collaborative problem solver. Mm -hmm. And not every education system that comes out well on yeah. science does well on collaborative problem solving. It's very interesting. We are now working on an assessment of global competency uh, coming out next year. And the idea there is to see to what extent students can see the world through different lenses yeah. and perspectives, appreciate different ways of thinking, different cultures, and so on. Which in today's world, you know, embracing diversity, you know, not being afraid of it, but really, you know, capitalizing on it is so important. And uh, we want to know where school systems are and also give them, you know, the tools to see where there are weaknesses and where they can learn from this in uh, the round afterwards. We're working on uh, assessing uh, creative thinking, yep. which is a huge challenge because, you know, Creative thinking means assessing students on solutions which you cannot, you know, program mm -hmm. into a kind yeah. of digital environment. So there are lots of really interesting things uh, come up. But also, <clears throat> we're going to do a new a survey on teachers, teaching, yeah. learning, giving teachers more of a voice. Also, looking more carefully at teacher well-being and the kind of work organization that gives teachers the kind of support to do what is actually yeah. the most difficult and most important job that we have in our society. So. Uh, technology as well. So there's lots of, I think, interesting things coming out on this front. Terrific. And and on the question of, of uh, uh, the, the one, if you had to choose one area of knowledge or one skill that you would want yeah. everyone in the world to, to, to have, what would that be? Well, you know, if you think about the next years where we have to learn how to pair the artificial intelligence of computers with the kind of human qualities that's mm -hmm. going to make a difference. I think our capacity to take perspective, the kind of mm -hmm. empathy at the level of individual levels, I think is something that was a nice to have and that's now probably the most fundamental skill. Wow. You know, can okay. you relate to other people? And at the aggregate level as well, you know, in a way our work on global competency is about this as well. It's about how we can create that kind of breaching and binding social capital that makes us you know work together with people who are different from us and i think empathy perspective taking i would think is is really the at the core of tomorrow's generation yeah. when artificial intelligence are going to is going to do a lot of the kind of things that make yeah. us successful now and this is coming from a statistician andreas thank you for your wise words thank you very much pleasure If you're enjoying the Wise Words podcast and want to find out more about our guests and their work, as well as discover what else we do at Wise, you can visit us at www.wise-qatar.org backslash wise-words. And if you want to continue the discussion, compliment or critique us, you can find us on Twitter at wise underscore tweets or at wise underscore CEO, hashtag wisepod. We would also appreciate reviews on iTunes because it helps other people find us.